0: of the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden, and today we're going to talk about anxiety disorders, adult neurogenesis, and the hippocampus. We're going to discuss all these things with Dr. Mazen Kierbeck. Here, I'll let Dr. Kierbeck introduce himself.
1: My name is Mazen Kierbeck. Uh, My current position is I'm an assistant professor in clinical neurobiology at uh, Columbia University. I'm in the Department of Psychiatry.
0: Dr. Kierbeck started his time at Columbia University as a postdoctoral fellow working with Renee Henn. With Dr. Henn, Dr. Kierbeck had several fantastic papers, including two we'll talk about today. We're going to start by having Dr. Kierbeck tell us just what an anxiety disorder is.
1: Basically, an anxiety disorder can be kind of viewed as kind of dysfunction in fear circuits, so kind of maladaptive fear responses, right? So the idea being that basically where someone without an anxiety disorder may respond to a certain situation without generating a fearful response, someone with an anxiety disorder may become quite fearful in response to maybe a neutral stimulus that in a normal person wouldn't generate that response. So there's a number of different anxiety disorders. So when we talk about anxiety disorders, it's kind of a, an overlapping, a very general um, list of of disorders. So the anxiety disorders we're tend to be interested in are things like post-traumatic stress disorder, which is an anxiety disorder that results from basically a traumatic situation that causes uh, maladaptive fear responses after the original trauma. Uh, panic disorders, such as kind of um, uh, you know a panic attack becoming uh, becoming um, an Anxiety disorder so that basically if you have a panic attack say in a certain place say a parking garage or something It may cause you to fear other parking garages so that you basically Avoid the uh, panic attack and then there's things just like generalized anxiety disorders Which are kind of a general sense of anxiety where there's almost like no feeling of where it came from and then other ones that we're interested in Is like obsessive compulsive disorder, which may also be uh, an anxiety an anxiety disorder, or basically it's kind of repetitive behaviors that are made to kind of alleviate the anxiety that's, uh, that's um, there.
0: Some of the anxiety disorders Dr. Kierbeck mentioned show up in the news, on the Internet, and in everyday life over and over again. We've all heard about PTSD. We've all heard about obsessive-compulsive disorder. That suggests that these and other diseases are either very common or very problematic. It turns out anxiety disorders are both.
1: People usually throw around these numbers, so basically anxiety disorders they have basically a lifetime prevalence of about twenty five percent so they're actually very, very common, the most common of psychiatric conditions and so um they account for a very large amount of money as the United States health uh system spends on it. so I think the last number I saw was like forty five billion dollars annually in uh in treatment of anxiety disorder, and so they're actually very um fairly prevalent and they can actually have very, very significant um, consequences on the way of life and, uh, and um, normal productivity and normal uh, relationships with other people.
0: At the beginning of the show, I told you we'd be talking about anxiety disorders and adult neurogenesis. Believe it or not, a statement like that was essentially unbelievable 30 or even 20 years ago. It's not just that there was no known connection between anxiety and adult neurogenesis 20 years ago. It's that, as Dr. Kierbeck will tell us next, there was no real evidence for adult neurogenesis.
1: Twenty years ago, there wasn't actually, it was thought that the brain uh, didn't actually form any new neurons, right? So it was thought that basically during development, you formed all your neurons. And then basically after, briefly after postnatal development, you basically stopped forming any new neurons. There had been some evidence. So there was a paper from um, Altman. That had shown that they do form these new neurons, that there are new neurons because they incorporated uh, tritiated thymidine, which is kind of an analog that's picked up by dividing cells. But because of the techniques back then, nobody had uh, been able to say that definitively these were neurons or not. So they could have been any other cell type in the brain that may be dividing in the adult. And then um, Fernando Nottenbaum at Rockefeller showed that in songbirds that this was the case. In songbirds, they developed that songbirds uh, generated new neurons. And so then it kind of reinvigorated people to start looking in other vertebrates, in vertebrates to see whether or not they form new neurons or not. Fred Gage and... Uh, Peter Erickson showed that in humans, finally, that's what kind of led people to become really excited about it, that basically humans do actually generate new neurons in the subgranular zone of the dentate gyrus. And actually, recently, actually just this year, a paper came out from um, a group in um, in Sweden uh, that showed that, uh, that basically if they look to see the amount of radioactive C14 that was picked up in the brain as a consequence of atomic bomb testing, they were able to show that in the hippocampus that there is constant generation of new neurons in humans. And so I think that that has kind of led to the most definitive evidence that adult generated neurons are formed within the hippocampus. And so then the question becomes, okay, so now we've actually shown, we know that it seems to be fairly Establish now that your hippocampus generates, adult, uh, generates neurons into adulthood. And so the question is, how can these be related to emotional control?
0: So far, we've heard Dr. Kierbeck talk about what makes a disorder an anxiety disorder and about how prevalent these disorders are. Dr. Kierbeck also walked us through a history of the idea of adult neurogenesis. However, we haven't yet talked about the linkages Dr. Kierbeck and others have found between adult neurogenesis and anxiety disorders. You might think that the next thing Dr. Kierbeck will tell us is that someone somewhere discovered that more adult neurogenesis decreases anxiety and improves the mood of patients and that this discovery launched a thousand grams. But actually, the wheels of scientific discovery turned in exactly the opposite direction.
1: Your emotional state actually modulates the level of adult-generated neurons. So if you look in mice, for example, Mice that are very stressed out, that are socially isolated, and you look in their dente gyrus, they actually don 't have a lot of young neurons, whereas mice that are in, live in enriched environments they 're around like kind of their their peers you know they get to exercise a lot. These kind of things that kind of elevate, quote unquote, elevate the mood of mice actually increase levels of adult neurogenesis in the hippocampus. And so, what um, was later found was that an antidepressant, which also increases kind of mood, an antidepressant also increases levels of neurogenesis in the hippocampus. And um, in 2003, Rene Hens' group, with whom I worked with as a postdoc, his group showed that actually if they remove all the young neurons from the dentate gyrus, that they actually block some of the behavioral effects of antidepressants. So that led to, an, that led to kind of this uh, neurogenic hypothesis of antidepressants, that basically one of the mechanisms of action of antidepressants is actually to grow new neurons in the hippocampus. And by growing these new neurons in the hippocampus, these may actually modulate emotional uh, behavior and elevate mood that way.
0: So the first inkling of a linkage between adult neurogenesis and anxiety suggested, essentially, that anxiety could impair adult neurogenesis, not that adult neurogenesis could ward off anxiety. Understanding that the converse is also true is where Dr. Kierbeck and his colleagues came into the story.
1: We know a couple of things. One, we know that, adult generate, that neurons are generated in the adult. In the adult hippocampus, we know that these grow in response to antidepressants. And then the question becomes, how do they affect behavior and how they affect mood? And that's kind of where I've come in and started working on a lot of these questions. And the thing that we have focused on is kind of one of the main um, roles classically attributed to the hippocampus. It's in learning and memory. And so if you think about it, how can learning and memory modulate anxiety state? And the way that we've addressed it is a process called memory generalization, which is actually very common in anxiety disorders. It's this idea that you kind of lump together different memories. And so, for example, you know, you have a fearful memory. Say you're like uh, in a war, you have PTSD, right? You're in a war and there's basically things blowing up all around you, right? If you happen to now, 20 years later, you have PTSD you go to a park and there's like an explosion because a gas grill blew up or something like that. It may trigger kind of an anxiety, that might be a very anxiety-provoking event to somebody with an anxiety disorder versus somebody without one. So somehow they've generalized their memory of that traumatic situation to kind of neutral situations. And so that's kind of um, this generalization of memory. Uh, we started to c- wonder whether or not this was related to hippocampal function and whether this is related to adult neurogenesis. And so the first evidence from this actually came from a paper uh, published um, uh, a-, a few years ago where basically what they did is they used uh, Amar Sahai, who was also a postdoc in the lab at the time, he used a genetic model to basically rescue young neurons that are born in the hippocampus from dying. And the idea was is that he asked, so it's known that a large percentage of these cells die early during their development, and they die from um, – it's a programmed cell death. It's, it's from uh, expression of the pro-apoptotic gene Bax. So Bax is expressed. It kills the cell. So he used the genetic trick to basically delete – backs from all of the young neurons, from the neural stem cells in the hippocampus. And so now what happens is that instead of a large proportion of those cells dying, a large proportion of those cells actually survive. So you ended up having a hippocampus that had way more young neurons than a normal hippocampus. And so then he asked, how are these mice different from other mice? And what he found is that he just did a test where he asked, he didn't really ask, but he basically tested mice in their ability to discriminate between a very kind of fearful situation and a safe situation. And for something like that we use something called contextual fear conditioning which is a very classic mouse test. And so for that you basically put an animal in a box and you give them a foot shock and the animal basically for almost probably in some situations the rest of its life always remembers that that box is fearful. And then what you do is you basically then introduce the mouse to a box that looks kind of like the box where they were shocked but there's just a few differences. Initially, the mouse will freeze to both boxes, suggesting that they generalize their fear to a neutral context, kind of like very similar to the um, to the example of someone that has been in a traumatic situation like a war and generalize their fear to kind of a picnic setting, you know? And so now what you do is you train the animals to discriminate between the two. And so eventually, animals will learn to withhold their freezing, which is the response of fear in mice, To the neutral context, but not to this kind of fearful shop context. And so, what he found in that study, which was published in Nature, I think, uh, 2012, what he found in that study was that basically if you increase the number of young neurons, those animals become better at discriminating. They learn to distinguish between the fearful context and the similar context. In addition, if you get rid of all the young neurons in the hippocampus, basically you have a, a hippocampus where there's no neurogenesis, these animals have a very, very hard time to discriminate. And so that led us to kind of think that perhaps the role of these young neurons is actually in this process process. process called pattern separation, which is the ability to kind of uh, take very similar inputs and turn them into very distinct outputs, so taking very similar contexts and basically transforming them into two very different outputs, like be afraid or don't be afraid.
0: Dr. Kierbeck just summed up decades of work in a few minutes, so let's hit the highlights one more time. Adult-born neurons in a part of the hippocampus called the dentate gyrus are essential for forming new memories. They're also important for something called pattern separation, a process by which similar experiences are transformed into distinct memories. You can kind of think of it this way. Cubists, artists like Picasso who are dedicated to breaking down what they see into geometric shapes, are intentionally terrible at pattern separation. People modeling for cubists stop having heads and torsos and start having circles resting atop rectangles or triangles or something. A cubist overgeneralizes natural forms and as Dr. Kierbeck pointed out, overgeneralization is often seen in anxiety disorders. Now the cubist example I just gave is a bit ridiculous. It sells cubism short and ignores pattern completion which is the other side of pattern separation. Where pattern separation is about storing similar experiences as different memories, pattern completion is about accessing similar memories and determining whether they are different. Let's then try a different example one that's a little more relevant. This example comes directly from a recent review Dr. Kierbeck published in Nature Neuroscience. Start with a soldier who has served in Iraq and imagine that at some point during his or her service, there was a fire. Now imagine that this soldier is back home toasting marshmallows over a campfire. Obviously a camping trip is in a war zone or at least it shouldn't be. But that scene contains a feature, the fire shared with memories from the soldier's service in Iraq a wholly healthy person would be able to discriminate the campfire from the fire in Iraq. However, if pattern separation is impaired in the soldier, the soldier may overgeneralize the campfire and experience heightened fear responses. That's PTSD. And here's the thing, pattern separation depends on adult neurogenesis and adult neurogenesis is impaired by, among other things, high levels of stress and traumatic experiences. But it leaves the question, how do you fix pattern separation? How do you generate more neurons?
1: Basically, in humans, probably the easiest way to increase uh, the number of young neurons in in humans is via kind of behavioral measures. So exercise, for example, learning, all of these promote the growth of young neurons. We know that in rodents and we know that uh, antidepressants increase the number of young neurons, the number of of uh, the amount of neurogenesis. And so these kinds of things would increase the, the, those, those measures, the n- actual numbers of young neurons. But the issue is, is that antidepressants, exercise, all these things do a lot of things to the brain, right? So they cause a lot of changes in the brain, not only neurogenesis. So we can't actually ever make the assumption that exor- say, say you exercise and it lifts your mood. You can't really make the assumption that neurogenesis was responsible for that change in your mood. It could have been any of the other million things that exercise does to your brain. And so the idea was in that study was to use a genetic technique to increase the young neurons. So basically leaving everything the same and only manipulating the young neurons to ask what happens in response to that manipulation.
0: So exercise and antidepressants help, but whether the increase in young neurons that is found following regular exercise is responsible for the benefits and pattern separation that occur, that's unclear. Exercise does a lot of good things for you, and it's possible that something else is providing the benefits in pattern separation. One researcher in Dr. Hen's lab addressed this issue and more strongly linked young neurons in the hippocampus to improvements in mood using genetic methods. Dr. Kubik wanted to go a step farther. He wanted to use optogenetics.
1: Optogenetics is a very hot technique now in neuroscience, and so the, I, the idea behind the technique is that you can express proteins that are sensitive to light in specific populations of cells. And these light, these light-sensitive proteins cause the cells to either become excited or inhibited. So, for example, we use one protein called channelrhodopsin. Channelrhodopsin basically, when a cell expresses channelrhodopsin, and you shine blue light on that cell, it causes the cell to fire an action potential. We also use something called halorhodopsin, which is a yellow light activated chloride pump. And so when you shine yellow light on that cell, it causes the cell to stop firing action potentials. And so what we did is we expressed either a chanorhodopsin or halorhodopsin in dentate granule cells which is the main principal cell type of the dentate gyrus, and then what we did is we implanted fiber optics into the animal, either into the dorsal portion of the dentate gyrus or the ventral portion of the dentate gyrus, and we asked, what is different about these two manipulations? So does does inhibiting or exciting the dorsal dentate gyrus do different things in the ventral dentate gyrus? And the idea was, was to test this hypothesis that the, dent, that the hippocampus is not kind of this unitary structure that actually can generate very different behaviors by modulating the dorsal and the ventral dentate gyrus. So what we found in that study was actually if you silence the dorsal portion of the dentate gyrus, the animals can't learn um, can't learn contexts, And so for that, we use just simple contextual fear conditioning. So the animal goes into a context. It gets yellow light to suppress the activity in the dorsal dentate. It gets a foot shock. You come back 24 hours later. You put the animals in without light. And what you see is that those animals don't freeze. And so basically, that light-induced inhibition of the dorsal dentate gyrus basically block their ability to form that memory. Then what we asked is, what happens if you excite the ventral portion of the dentate gyrus? And that was actually really exciting because what we found is that if we activate just the ventral portion of the dentate gyrus, the mice actually just become less anxious. You basically put them into, a say, a classic test that we use. It's called the elevated plus maze. And in that maze, basically, it looks like a plus and it's elevated off of the ground. The two arms on, on the left and right side are open and the two, the two arms, say, facing you are closed. And so mice don't like to be in open spaces. They like to kind of scurry and stay in very um in next to walls and in darker areas. And so if you put a mouse in there what you find is that the animal barely spends any time in the open arms of the maze. They tend to stay in the closed arms because they're more they're anxious creatures. And so what we found is that when we stimulated the ventral portion of the dente gyrus, these animals just basically walked out into the open arms and basically just started exploring the open arms as if they didn't care. And so it was a measure of decreased anxiety. We basically shut down anxiety in these animals. And then what happened is when we turned off the light, the animals rushed back into the closed arm and acted anxious again. So it was a very acute control of anxiety just via modulation of the ventral dente gyrus. So that indicated to us that there was a circuit in place from the ventral hippocampus to some downstream areas, which we're actually working on right now. We're not actually, we don't know where that is it might be the amygdala which is an area important in generating fearful behavior and we know that the amygdala gets input from the ventral hippocampus and so we know that that activity there is important for modulating uh, anxiety behavior at least acutely and so it was kind of the first demonstration that you can modulate behavior by just modulating the hippocampus and you can modulate anxiety specifically by just controlling the activity of one cell type within the hippocampus
0: so not all cells even in just one portion of one structure in the brain, are the same. The role of the ventral dentate gyrus is not the same as the role of the dorsal dentate gyrus. But I had to ask Dr. Kierbeck, how does this help? After all, we can't manipulate humans as easily as we can mice or rats.
1: With any of these experiments, the idea is is actually to be able to delineate the circuits that are involved in the behavior. But the ability to use optogenetics in humans, I mean, that's that's not going to happen anytime soon, right? But to be able to find the circuits that are involved and then be able to target those circuits pharmacologically, that would be kind of what how we're headed with this. So, for example, if you wanted to be able to say target adult neurogenesis, you could come up with agents that we know may increase a cell proliferation in the dentate gyrus, right? And so, some sort of, uh, um, you know, some sort of an agent that is whether like small molecule, whether it's modulators of cell growth, things like that. Uh, if you can come up with these compounds to kind of modulate the numbers of young neurons in human beings, you may be able to affect behavior in that way.
0: On that hopeful note, it's time to end the show. Our guest today was Dr. Mason Kierbeck, an assistant professor in clinical neurobiology at Columbia University. He talked to us about the hippocampus, adult neurogenesis, and anxiety. If you would like to talk to us about these topics or any others, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on the public radio exchange at archive.org, and on our own homepage, grox.net. For all of us here on the Grox Science Show, thanks for listening and have a relaxing afternoon.